an update on new gun owners from the pandemic, plus an interview with National Review's Charles Cook from Florida's Special Session and Constitutional Carry. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our memberships today if you want exclusive access to dozens of original reports and analysis pieces on firearms policy and politics, uh, and also access to this podcast today early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment, which we actually have another one of those this week. Always one of my favorite segments or my favorite segment, although uh, the full interview with experts is another great segment, which is one we have right now with National Review's Charles Cook. Hi, Charles. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's good to have you back. You were, I think you were the very first guest, actually. That's right. Yeah, I remember um, that. Right when you launched. Yeah. So uh, we always really appreciate you coming on, being the first guest. And now... Things have come back around to your home state of Florida, your your adopted home state in in Florida. Uh, we have uh, some interesting gun news coming out of there, in in the shape of a special session for the legislature that may include constitutional carry or permitless carry. Um, the governor, Ron DeSantis, a Republican, said that uh, well, first of all, he he vetoed the congressional map, and that's why they have to have a special session. Uh, but when he was asked about other issues that might come up or other things he might want to see the legislature do, he included constitutional carry among uh, a couple other policies in his comments. So uh, I'm interested, Charles, uh, you've written about this over at the corner, uh, National Review, and uh, I want to know what your take is. Where, where do you see this going? How do you see it coming out? Well, there has been a bit of a shift in DeSantis's rhetoric. This was never a big issue for him. He has always had an A rating from the NRA, and he's been pro-Second Amendment throughout his entire career. But constitutional carry was not something he talked about until recently. I don't know whether the change has been something he sensed in the legislature, or it's because it's an election year, he's running for re-election in November, or because he might want to be president one day. But in... March, he said that if the bill came to his desk, he would sign it. And people got all excited, but the session was already effectively over. And so it languished and died, uh, nevertheless. And the reason people are talking about this again, as you note, is because of this special session. Now, the special session ostensibly is to deal with the redistricting map. But when talking to reporters the other day, DeSantis said, there's a whole load of stuff I'd like to get done. He mentioned property uh, insurance, which has become a problem recently in Florida. And he mentioned constitutional carry. He obviously can't force the legislature to do this. Um, but he could plausibly use them as a bargaining chip. Uh, mm. If he wants to give a bit, maybe he could ask for something and constitutional carry would be uh, would be an option. And then, and we'll come on to this too, there's always the possibility that he's beginning to lay the groundwork for this now so that it is picked up by uh, members of the legislature worked on while the legislature is out of session. Florida's legislature only meets for 60 days a year. And then right. if there are more Republicans in that legislature next year, which given the national climate and the climate in Florida seems possible, uh, then maybe he assumes it would go through then. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, he, I think he, noting his sort of attitude towards constitutional carry is important here because, yeah, he made those comments back in March where he said he would sign it if it made it to his desk, right? Which is obviously pretty different than saying he want, he's going to push for it or leverage, you know, use his political influence to get it passed. Uh, and then at the same time, those comments were made in, at a fundraiser where a gun rights activist had sort of come in for a picture or what I think DeSantis thought was a picture, but it was actually a video, and then asked him this question, uh, and he reacted with a sort of, of course I would support that. But he, he, yes, yeah, so he kind of got almost pushed into it. And then even at this press conference uh, about the special session, 
he was asked what else he'd like to see. And he said, well, you know, I'd like to see these different policies, uh, but the legislature didn't get them passed in regular session. And he didn't seem to think they were going to get them passed in special session either. So I do wonder how much actual uh, momentum there's going to be inside of the legislature during the special session to get permitless carry, constitutional carry passed. Yeah, so Florida is a strange state in this regard in that it has uh, a permitting system that is popular, not just in the state of Florida, but outside of it. Uh, you can get a concealed carry permit for Florida from, uh, uh, well, through the mail, <laughs> um, providing you have the training requirements, uh, that is then good and counts in a huge number of other states. Now, there are some states that require you to be a resident of the state that uh, is attached to reciprocity, but a lot of states don't. So, for example, you live in Connecticut, as I used to, um, and you want reciprocity with a whole bunch of other concealed carry states that don't recognize Connecticut, you can get a, a Florida concealed carry permit. Now, the reason I bring this up um, is that that makes Florida quite a lot of money because mm. you know, there are uh, yes. millions of Florida concealed carry permits and in a state with no income tax, uh, you have to raise money somehow. And I've long, I've long thought that, that maybe Florida had held on to its permitting process because it, it's lucrative. The minute that you get rid of your permits, then you get rid of your renewal fees and application fees. And when you get rid of your application fees, then there's no money coming in at all. Um, you know, I like that because I think that it makes a constitutional right easier to utilize. Um, but I can understand why the, the, the state government might say, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Of course, mm. what's changed since Florida uh, contrived its uh, Charlotte issue permitting system and its generous reciprocity rules is that we're now at almost half of states in uh, America with constitutional carry. Um, you know, I think you said Georgia is about to become the 25th. Yeah. And that makes Florida look a bit weird because Florida is disparagingly referred to by gun control activists as the gunshine state. And yet it still has this, this older way of, of doing things. And I'm sure that DeSantis is aware of this. I'm sure that Republicans in the legislature are aware of this and they don't want to get behind the curve. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely going to see Georgia become the 25th state to adopt permitless carry here in the next week or, or two, maybe um, once once they're, I believe the Georgia House as the, at a time of, you know, filming here uh, had passed their their final version of the bill and it should be reconciled with the Senate and then on to Governor uh, Brian Kemp's desk, who's who's already pledged to sign it, really already pledged to sign it on, on this very podcast. Uh, but he did that. He did it before then as well. So they're going to become 25th. And then uh, it really becomes a question of, of momentum and pressure for the rest of the red states that don't have permitless carry, because it's almost all of them now. Every state that has uh, Republican control of the legislature and the governor's uh, mansion ha has basically gotten on board with this policy over the last, uh, really the last decade it's been. Yeah. Uh, since Arizona passed uh, their permitless carry, you know, Arizona, Alaska had done it, and I think it was 2003. And then obviously Vermont was the originator back in the founding uh, mm -hmm. for this policy, which is why some people call Vermont carry. But now the momentum for it has just exploded within the Republican side of the aisle. And uh, it's going to be increasingly difficult not to pass permitless carry, I think, for Republicans in these states. So somebody like Ron DeSantis, who obviously has ambitions beyond Florida's governorship, uh, it'll be harder for him to win a primary, probably, if he if he isn't on board with this policy and doesn't get it passed, I would imagine. And, and so I, that's one thing that's clearly changed. And one one reason why you think it's possible this this special session could actually see permitless carry. But, but, you know, I think that Florida's gun politics are really pretty special uh, when you look at it compared to some of the other red states out there, right? Because even the shall issue law that you guys have, the permitting system you have now, 
is relatively strict compared to uh, some of the others, even where I am in Virginia uh, until, you know, very recently. But, uh, you know, you, you need to submit fingerprint requirements, uh, fingerprint records, uh, which is not which is a very uncommon thing for a lot of uh, red states with with shall sorry shall issue permitting. Um, so and then obviously Florida just passed a number of gun control laws not that long ago in uh, response to the Parkland mass shooting. You know, they restricted uh, the age of ownership for uh, long guns. You know, they did a number of things. And so you, you sort of have this very interesting interplay when it comes to uh, gun politics in Florida, don't you think? Yeah, so there are some there are some interesting laws on the books that you would not assume would be there, given that Republicans have won the governor's mansion in every election now since 1998, and that the state has had a Republican legislature, often a supermajority Republican legislature since 1995, I think. For example, we have a three-day waiting period. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a concealed carry permit, it doesn't apply. But it is there. It's actually in the state constitution. We have uh, no open carry. Uh, Florida is one of five, six states that doesn't have open carry. Uh, we have a ban on carrying firearms in the non-secured parts of airports. Again, there are only five states uh, where you can't carry a gun into the uh, baggage reclaim or or departure uh, right. a hall in an airport. Um, you know, California is one of them, but so is, uh, so is Florida. Um, so in some regards, uh, it has uh, stayed more in the late 1990s, early 2000s more than other states that are dominated by Republicans. That yeah. said, the, the law you're talking about that was passed in 2018 was the anomaly. Mm-hmm. Uh, for 30 years, every single change that had been made to Florida's gun laws had been uh, liberalizing. And again, it's difficult to predict the future, but if you look at the trajectory of Florida with the influx of Republican voters, probably with the second term for DeSantis, maybe with a, an enhanced majority in the legislature, I, I don't think there's going to be much more gun control on the horizon. Um, so the question is, what will uh, what will the legislature, if it takes up a, a gun bill, what will it do? And constitutional carry seems to be the obvious option to me. Um, I don't think open carry would have a chance of passing. And, and I think the reason for that is tourism. There's a feeling, and I don't think it's entirely unwarranted, uh, that there is a, a profound difference between somebody carrying a gun in a bag or a glove box or a you know, belt and somebody carrying it on his hip. And, you know, not, not that I am particularly, especially at the moment, uh, thrilled with Disney and Universal and um, uh, SeaWorld, Bush Gardens and so on, uh, calling up the legislature and complaining. But I can understand why from their perspective, uh, they might not want the visual uh, of, you know, widely open carried guns in, in what is the, one of the world's great tourist destinations. So, you know, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, constitutional carry, it really should happen. I mean, I, I, I sort of finished by saying that the, the history that you just related about constitutional carry is actually worth reflecting on. Oh, it's yeah. a remarkable shift. And you have Vermont's the only state till 2003. Then Alaska joins Vermont. Okay, well, you might expect that given uh, Alaska's geography. Then Arizona. Okay, 2010. And then all of them. Right. <laughs> it just yes. all these dominoes fell. And nothing happened. Uh, you know, there really is no difference either way in in uh, outcomes as a result of this. And and when you have no difference in either direction in outcomes, and you're talking about a constitutional right, then I think the instinct has to be toward um, getting the government out of the way. Uh, if there's no profound reason to, to do otherwise. Um, so I hope Florida does it because uh, it seems to me that maintaining this this database of people is is superfluous. Yeah. Um, you know, I just think it's always interesting because you, states like Florida and Texas have a reputation for being these extremely gun-friendly states, but a place like Virginia, for instance, which mm-hmm. is 
trended bluer over the last uh, decade or, or decade and a half, and obviously with the exception of the most recent election here for governor. But, um, you know, Virginia's gun laws have always been a, a bit more uh, um, open than than Florida or, or Texas until very recently. Uh, but now, but yeah, certainly the, the momentum for constitutional carry, for permitless carry has been incredible over these last decade, really, just really just a decade. Um, you've, you've gone from it being a, a, a tiny fringe policy uh, by states with really minuscule populations like Vermont and Alaska to being the dominant policy and about to be the policy in half the country um, with some possibility that even the Supreme Court could uh, mandate it as uh, necessary under the Second Amendment. I don't think that's the likely outcome of the gun carry case that they're hearing right now, but it's not an impossibility. Um, and so that's, and really even going further back than that, because, you know, yes, constitutional carry has swept across in very quick succession, but I mean, it was not that long ago that you couldn't legally conceal a firearm in the vast majority of the country right, at all, right. whether you had a permit, there was no permitting process. It was just outright illegal for, for long periods of time. Um, and yeah, it's been interesting to see that change because what for a long time too, it wasn't like there was overwhelming polling support for this policy. This is very much an activist driven change. I think, you know, you had the gun rights activists yeah. who care deeply about this issue, pushing for this change. And, you know, whereas the general public might not even necessarily notice that the change is happening. And if you do a, uh, an opinion poll, um, until very recently, it pulled, uh, polls poorly among the general population. But at the same time, like you said, I, it's harder to establish that there's been any um, direct correlation between these policy changes and increases in, in you know, uh, concealed carry crimes. Right. And so that's, I think, what's kept it moving because, you know, the, the, there hasn't been major backlash. You've never once seen a state go from a stricter no. gun carry law to a, or from a less strict law back to a stricter law. That's, that hasn't right. happened since. So, yeah, so it, it's incredible. Another thing that's interesting about this, I think, is that while one half of the states have now adopted these policies, two thirds of the geographical area of the United States is under constitutional carry system. And the mm -hmm. reason that matters, I know people get funny about this because they say, well, land doesn't vote, people vote. Absolutely yeah. true. But people move across land. And especially in America where they drive, um, right. it, it is really useful uh, to have a system in which one doesn't have to worry about permits if one is driving with a firearm. Uh, you know, we've all looked up the, the laws on the East Coast Drive to find out right. uh, where we can and can't carry and which guns are allowed and when they're not. And, you know, even if you invoke the Firearms Owners Protection Act, which allows you to get from A to B, you still have to be legal in A and in B. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, if Florida does add itself and Georgia does in a week or so as well, you'll be able to drive from... Uh, you know, from Florida to, to North Dakota <laughs> without ever having to worry about permits or reciprocity or any of it. I think that's um, a good point because it's important to dial in on what the actual practical effect of this policy is. Because in, in real life, you know, there's plenty to talk about uh, when, when it comes to whether someone should carry a gun, what, what the responsibilities are for somebody who wants to carry a gun and the kind of training they ought to get. But uh, one of the most common critiques of permitless carry is that it eliminates the training requirements. But the thing is, and I'm a certified instructor who teaches the, the basic pistol course that will qualify you for a Virginia concealed carry permit. And I can tell you that that course doesn't teach you really anything about gun carry. Uh, it teaches you about pistols and how to safely operate them and uh, maintain them and, and, how ammunition works and how the gun actually operates and so forth. But it doesn't, the, the thing is like in Virginia and I, I'm using Virginia cause that's uh, the example I know best. I mean, you could use something like discharge papers from the military. Uh, like people really wildly overestimate, I think oftentimes what the training requirements actually are in most of these States uh, for, to get the permit. So, you know, I don't know that that is, um, 
something that has protected the public in places that have permitting. And uh, at the same time, like, what is the practical use of this law by police? And, um, you know, oftentimes, as we've seen public defenders come out and say, uh, whether it's in the Supreme Court case or uh, there was recently a press conference in Detroit by a number of public defenders, these laws are used disproportionately against minorities who are carrying guns um, without permits. And, uh, you know, the, what it really is eliminating is just the charge of having a gun on you without any further proof that you've done anything wrong or intended to commit any other sort of crime. And so that's sort of the practical output. And you, like I mentioned there, you, you should consider how those crimes are actually charged in real life as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and people also misunderstand what constitutional carry does. I, I just see every single time I write about this, I get emails from people who say, well, it's crazy to allow anyone to carry a gun. That's not what this does. Yeah. It just right. inverts the presumption such that you don't have to apply to demonstrate it. All those who are... Uh, prohibited from buying or owning or possessing or carrying a firearm are still prohibited. Right. Um, so if you're a prohibited it, it, person, it, it doesn't, yeah, you can't even touch yeah. a gun. <laughs> it doesn't, right. you know, right. uh, that's the reality. It doesn't change who's uh, prohibited from owning firearms or from possessing firearms. All it does is eliminate the, this permit that, so yeah. And that, that's what I mean by like these charges that get brought where they're not connected to some other crime. Uh, in Detroit, at least according to the public defenders there, 97% of those arrests were uh, for uh, black males. And uh, with when that was the only charge, and that that's really right. what this eliminates, is that those situations where it's the only charge. Because if somebody goes out and commits a crime with a gun, you can still charge them for ro armed robbery or whatever it may be, assault with a deadly weapon, um, it has no effect on that constitutional carry. All it has an effect on is this when you're charging somebody for carrying a gun without a permit. And so all, so you can see why some police groups might oppose this as the, they might oppose a broader reading of the fourth amendment because it makes police work more difficult in theory. You can't just charge, just catching someone with a gun doesn't inherently make it a crime right. anymore in states that have permitless carry. And so, you know, Police might think that takes a tool away from them, right? But, but uh, you know, if you're a civil libertarian, obviously you you the priority isn't necessarily how easy it is for police to do their jobs, right? Yeah, and a good example of illustrating uh, this is Florida's rules on vehicular carry, because in Florida, to carry in your car, you need no license whatsoever. You just need to be eligible. The, the car under Florida law is an extension of your home. It's your domicile. So a person can move down to Florida, become a resident here, um, and then put their gun in their glove box and drive around. They don't need a, a permit. If they put it in their belt when they walk around in the street, then they need a permit. Now, it's not obvious to me why <laughs> that is the case or what the real difference is. Um, you know, so we already, in in one sense, have constitutional carry. You just have to be in a car uh, when you do it. And, and I find that amusing also because one of the arguments against concealed carry in general, which of course never came to fruition, but the, if you look back into the late 80s, uh, especially in Florida in 1987 when it passed Charles Issue and the, the New York Times sort of went crazy over this, wrote all those pieces about the gunshine state. Yeah. Um, was people are just going to murder each other all the time on the roads. People are going to murder each other all the time in the supermarkets. Well, this didn't happen. But I mean, assume that that, that would be the problem. Well, then you wouldn't want to allow people without a permit to carry in their car. And yet we do. Right. Um, so the, the permitting system just seems to me to be a little bit arbitrary, given that there's no statistical difference between having one and, and not having one. Yeah, it absolutely can be. I mean, Virginia is very similar. I mean, in Virginia, uh, open carry is legal without a permit here. And this extends to your car as well. You can uh, have a, a loaded gun in your car if it's open, if you like lay it on your seat next to you. <laughs> yeah. uh, but if it's, if it's underneath uh, you know, a newspaper, that's not legal. Uh, and it gets even more complicated because uh, I believe this was uh, about 10 years ago, the Republican attorney general at the time issued a, an a, opinion that said you can have a loaded gun 
uh, in your car without a permit if it's in um, a, a container like the um, like uh, like your glove box. Uh, so similar idea there in, in Florida, right? But uh, in Virginia, so this actually came up if you remember. Um, there was a, um, a, a an a army uh, officer, I believe, he was pulled over at a gas station, and um, you know this it became a, a whole incident because he got pepper sprayed, um, and, and he sued the police over this. But one of the issues at hand was that he had a gun, and I remember uh, Greg Kelly, because he's the host of Newsmax. Uh, a host on Newsmax and he was, he had freaked out about the fact that this guy had a gun in his car and was, uh, was, wasn't uh, out yet about whether he had a permit or not. And he was like yelling that this guy was a criminal. And I was like, well, no, because if that gun was in a container, you didn't even need a permit for it. Right. Uh, but, right. but that's sort of speaks to the absurdity of it. So if it, it had been in a container, it's legal. If it's in like your side door, not legal. If it's out on your, on your seat legal, you know, there's a lot, this is why I always tell people in Virginia to, if they want to own a handgun, they ought to get a concealed carry permit, even if they don't ever intend on carrying it on their person anywhere, because really transportation, transporting it around right, can right. get you in just as much trouble. You could get right. charged over that stuff. And, uh, you know, if you don't transport it properly, if you, if it's, loaded when it's supposed to be unloaded and the police pull you over and they consider it to be concealed instead of uh, openly carried or, you know, whatever it might be, or even if they don't, they might not even, of course, know some of these exceptions and arrest you anyway. But, but, you know, the, the point is like, there's a lot of arbitrariness that goes into these distinctions, especially in states where it's, uh, you don't have a permit requirement for open carry, but you do for concealed carry. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that goes along with the point you were making about the, the complexities of uh, of this and why it's why people support streamlining it by just removing the permitting process. Yeah, and and the last thing I would say on this trend is that it, it's once again worth reminding uh, people that this was not a policy that was imposed by the Supreme Court. In fact, the Supreme Court has largely stayed out of this. Now, there is going to be a carry case this year, although I don't think it will reach the question of constitutional carry. Uh, the change in this, both the original adoption of concealed carry permits and move to shall issue, and then the adoption of constitutional carry, has been achieved by legislatures. Legislatures yeah. full of people who won elections and then were put up for election and re-elected. Uh, it was not imposed by Justice Scalia, uh, it was not uh, an edict that came down from on high. It was not state supreme courts that did this. It was legislatures and governors signed it. Um, and you're right about public opinion. It's rare that you see a poll showing majorities thrilled by the idea. But they also don't hate it because if they did, you wouldn't have this many states doing it. You would see right. people losing elections over it. Um, it's yeah. just a, a not a salient issue for people. And again, the reason for that is that they have worked out by now that every time that the concealed carry rules are loosened, someone stands up and says, this is going to lead to disastrous consequences. And it just doesn't. Um, they still so, say that, by the way. You still have yeah, no, they do. Well, I mean, I remember, I remember with that, that when Illinois became the last state to adopt uh, concealed carry in, in 2015, the governor, I think Quinn was his name, the governor mm. said, we can't have this because if we do, people are going to be shooting each other in the supermarket. And I thought, you know, I actually would have had some sympathy for the people who made that prediction in the 1980s because we didn't actually know what was going to happen in the modern era. If we just passed Charlie Shook and Cyril Carey everywhere. But to be saying that 30 years later was preposterous, <laughs> just totally preposterous. And yeah. yet they still went with it. So. I think it's an interesting point, though, because... Like you said, uh, public polling is not the only way to uh, judge whether the popularity of an issue, or at least how it's going to play out politically. Because, right? I mean, universal background checks would be another obvious example of this, right. where they pull support for universal background checks is extremely high. But, um, and, and obviously, you have some blue states that have adopted that policy, but you you haven't seen Republicans run out of town in, in all the red states because they don't adopt it, and and you've mm -hmm. even seen. Places like Maine 
uh, go the other way in referendums where it's voters directly voting on the issue. So even though it polls really well. So this is important to keep in mind when, when we talk about these these policies. It's like polling is not the only gauge. And no. uh, and yeah, while while the so it was Illinois and D.C. were forced into shall issue by by federal judges, but every other state wasn't. Uh, the Supreme Court is probably going to clean up the last eight or so here. Uh, but but that's a good point. I mean, this was a, by and large a, a grassroots movement of uh, dedicated activists across the country who got this done. It wasn't necessarily. It, was, it certainly wasn't the courts, by and large, that did it. Uh, you know, no. as as you've seen with some other uh, social issue um, policies being put into place, and so it's it's fascinating uh, to see how this has played out, and it's really incredible the acceleration we've seen over the last decade. Obviously, from you know they got <laughs> gun rights activists got shall issue in place, and then they went right to permitless carry, and that's moved even faster. So uh, it, it's interesting, but. Speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, by the way, uh, obviously we have a new justice who's about to be confirmed and appointed to to the court here, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. She had her confirmation hearings uh, last week, and um, we got a little bit more information on what she believes on guns. But, uh, you know, obviously she's never ruled on the Second Amendment in the Second Amendment case. She hasn't, uh, as far as I'm aware been the attorney in a second amendment case either she has done some uh, cases that involved firearms but uh which we can get into a little bit but i'm interested in what you think having you know seen the confirmation hearings and seen some of her comments on second amendment um what what you think of how she might rule once she's on the court because it's kind of uh, predetermined at this point she's going to make it I think it's so difficult to tell. My broad assumption is that she's not an originalist because if she were one, Joe Biden wouldn't have nominated her and the Democrats wouldn't be as enthusiastic about approving her as they are. Now, she did make some originalist sounding noises at the, the hearing. Uh, in fact, in some ways, she sounded more originalist than some of the recent Republicans with the exception yeah. of, uh, of Neil Gorsuch. We will see. I am skeptical. Yeah. It was notable that she didn't say the Second Amendment protects the right to bear arms. She said the Supreme Court has said yes. that the Second Amendment protects the right to keep and bear arms, which is a, a correct factual recitation of the law rather mm -hmm. than a, a proactive statement or an endorsement. Uh, of course, Justice Kagan uh, made it sound as if she might be on board with Heller in 2009, and then in 2010 was in the dissent in McDonald, which applied Heller to the states. So, you know, it's it's difficult yeah. to tell, and there's nothing that Katanji Brown Jackson said that uh, fills me with hope. What does fill me with hope is that Heller is by no means perfectly or permanently safe. But it does seem to be it does seem to be safer than Roe for a couple of reasons. First off, uh, it's based in the text of the Constitution, and Roe is not. Uh, second, it's really popular. Eighty percent of Americans agree with this, the core finding in, in Heller, which they should because mm -hmm. it's a matter of elementary history. Um, and third, the courts have actually not that I like this, uh, but the, the courts have actually stayed out of Second Amendment questions in almost every case. And if you look at Roe, Roe was applied instantly um, and repeatedly. You know, any state moved slightly to regulate abortion, in came the court, struck it down, injunction the same day. Um, that has not been the story of Heller. I mean, Heller was decided 14 years ago now, and the courts have largely stayed out of it. And that makes the pressure on it uh, much less. So, you know, how many cases are we likely to see, given where politics is in the United States, given the way Heller is regarded, given, you know, that even in uh, democratic run states, there aren't many people who are pushing for a total ban on guns. Um, 
how likely is it that Katanji Brown Jackson is going to be asked the question, does the Second Amendment protect an individual right? What she's much more likely to be asked is, what is the scope of that right? Yes. What guns count? Um, what does bear arms mean? Uh, what sort of restrictions on keeping, you know, ch obviously child locks w was one of the issues in Heller, right. um, are acceptable. And there, I think it's quite hard to, to tell uh, where she would come down. If you look at a lot of the lower court cases where you actually can't determine how those come out by just looking at the political affiliation of the president or you know, even at state court level governor who, who appointed the judge. Um, so it's a tough one. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting, you know, because she hasn't actually ruled on the second amendment at all, you know, you, you're kind of stuck looking at these, uh, things that are more like signs than any concrete evidence. Um, because, you know, she took the classic sort of Ginsburg approach that, that they all take now of reciting what the precedent is, saying she recognizes the precedent, uh, but without giving her personal opinion or her personal take on how she would rule because, you know, you don't want to bias yourself against cases that are going through. She was specifically asked, I believe, uh, about... Um, well, she was she was asked about there was a couple of things she she got she, like you said she agreed that it was a individual right to keep and bear arms at one point she said added in the home because that is technically the the precedent I mean technically the precedent in Heller is that you have a right to own right, a handgun right. in, inside your own home for self defense and it's an individual right but she went a, a little bit further than that and left the handgun part out but but you know, sort of summed up what Heller actually said in the basic terms. Then she said, she was asked if it was on equal footing. Uh, there was a, Cornyn asked about like, it was more a point about Roe than Heller, mm -hmm. but he asked her if she considered Heller to be on the same uh, level as Roe. And she said that she wasn't aware of any ranking system of precedents and that they're all kind of, the, all Supreme Court precedents are basically the same. Uh, and then Blackburn asked her uh, again, asked her to describe the what Heller established in her own words, which she did, but then refused to answer uh, questions about, um, you know, f potential future. She, she was asked about basically may issue gun carry laws, which is exactly what the Supreme Court's deciding right now in Bruin, the case we've been alluding to here. And she said she couldn't answer that because the, because they have this case in front of them. So she didn't give us a lot in terms of what to take away. And then you have her history as, uh, you know, there's some reason to think maybe she could, you know, best case scenario be like a sort of left-leaning version of Gorsuch maybe. Maybe she's more inclined to take a, a civil libertarian approach to things and that could get her to, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> closer to. Well, I think that's a great point. Gorsuch I think that's a great point. I don't know. Uh, she was well, a public defender. Uh, right, right. Maybe. She's used to taking on the government. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, one of the things that always alarmed me about Merrick Garland was that he had spent his entire career demonstrating that he was in effect a statist. And one of the, the jobs of a Supreme Court justice is when necessary to tell the government that it's wrong, that it can't do what it's trying to do. And so while the Democrats rallied around Garland because they wanted him there and they wanted him to protect Roe and they didn't want Scalia replaced with, with a, a Gorsuch, um, had they been choosing a nominee from scratch, I think they wouldn't have chosen him because he's on the other side of a lot of criminal justice questions, for example, that, that progressives uh, um, care about. And uh, what we've seen with Katanji Brown-Jackson is that they don't have that problem this time around. They've been able to say, look, this is somebody who defended terrorists against the government right. which was with and cato by the way that, that's a libertarian think tank she filed that one exactly so. exactly but when you get into that mindset then perhaps you're accustomed to standing up to the government and saying well actually the law says what it says and you know you have a right to um or my client has has a right to exercise it so i've wondered that too um yeah. whether that instinct has trained her uh, to be a little more 
willing to overturn government power. The other question, too, is, I mean, Biden made this a nomination about race and gender primarily. Yeah. Right. That was the key determining factor for who he was going to pick. Obviously, there were more there was plenty more than one qualified black woman, but that was the top priority in in this pick. So, yes, I think her him picking her and he's obviously aggressively pro gun control and wants to all sorts of new restrictions Mm -hmm. Uh, on gun ownership uh, and the gun control groups uh, are are celebrating her pick and the gun rights groups are opposed to it. But really, the, like if you read what they say about her, it's all kind of just based off the fact that Biden picked her and guns right. were not the top priority for why Biden was picking her. So that, that's no. where you get this sort of wiggle room of like, what does she really believe uh, on this stuff? And she was a public defender, was, as we, I mentioned earlier. Public defenders in recent years, at least some of them, have taken a dim view of some of the more restrictive gun laws out there. Yeah, so I know that a lot of people on the left have said that conservatives oppose Katandi Brown-Jackson because she's a black woman. This is nonsense. Conservatives' favorite justice is Clarence Thomas. Um, Right. And they were very strongly in favor of uh, Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. Conservatives, and and this is more true than it is on the left, have uh, a preference for judicial philosophy, that judicial philosophy being originalism and textualism. And as such, um, they are prepared, as we saw uh, in 2016, to block nominees when they can that they don't believe have it. Now, the reason I mention this is that it is entirely legitimate for uh, the two political parties to nominate uh, people to the Supreme Court that they think are likely to approach the law in the way that they would prefer. So on the right, you have originalism, and on the left, you have living constitutionalism, which isn't really a coherent or uh, morally defensible theory, but uh, at least has a political element to it. Um, With Katanti Brown-Jackson, there was this other element that was thrown in, uh, that being she's a black woman. Now, I don't doubt for a single moment uh, that she is qualified in the sense that we use that legally. She seems smart. She's got a great temperament. She's mm-hmm. uh, obviously an accomplished uh, woman with a, um, a great um, uh, career behind her and presumably ahead of her. Um, I don't think that is as important as her judicial philosophy. Um, it does raise the question, though, if you start looking at other things... That is, if you're Joe Biden and you're fixated on the immutable characteristics of your nominee, do you take into account the judicial philosophical question? And although I don't think this is going to happen, I think there's probably more of a chance that Katanji Brown-Jackson ends up as a reverse suitor, uh, or at least is disappointing to Joe Biden, than there has been uh, with any of the other Democratic picks of late, just because... Uh, other factors were taken into account and and the pool was narrowed down to three people, three qualified people, but three people nevertheless. Uh, And it would be a great irony, wouldn't it, if the fixation on these immutable characteristics, which again, are no slight on Katanji Brown-Jackson, actually led to uh, the nomination and approval of a justice who was, say, much more friendly on guns than Joe Biden would have wanted if he'd had uh, a broader pool to pick from. I mean, that's the thing about a Supreme Court justice. Uh, they can do whatever they want, basically, once they get on the court. Mm-hmm. So right, if they have right. no record on an issue, uh, you're trying to just guessing at what they might do, which is what we've been doing here. But that's clearly what the Biden administration has been doing as well. And it's just not crystal clear. I think you can I think it is fair enough, as you said at the beginning, to take the signals from political actors on this and and say, well, most likely she will end up as Sotomayor and Kagan did, uh, regardless of what they said in their confirmation hearings, uh, and rule with the the liberal uh, side of the court on gun issues. I think that's probably the most likely outcome, right? But there are interesting things uh, in in this whole confirmation uh, and appointment process that that it's just I think it's worth noting. It's not a hundred percent in my mind. No, and it's always worth remembering that we now live in a post-Heller world and you can't go back to the status quo ante. I occasionally read uh, 
anti-Second Amendment writers saying, well, if we overturn Heller, we'd just be back to where we were before. That's actually not true. Um, you hear this line from those who believe Heller was wrongly decided that uh, the Supreme Court had never said until 2008 that the Second Amendment protected an individual right. That's true, but that's not the same thing as no one having thought until 2008 that it was an individual right. And I won't reiterate this. Your listeners have heard me go through this before. But if you go back to the founding, this is not really much of a debate. If you look at the uh, late 18th and early 19th century, this is really not much of a debate. Uh, yes, no, the court cases didn't really come up, but that's because it was fairly obvious to everyone what the Second Amendment meant. If you overturn Heller, then what you are saying is not, well, we've never addressed this. You're saying the Second Amendment does not protect an individual right. Uh, and that is a different world than the one mm. that existed prior to Heller. And I have to think um, that even the most uh, skeptical um, judge would, would be aware of that uh, and that it would be quite hard to get to a point at which Heller was explicitly overturned. So again, I can't quite see a circumstance in which um, uh, Jackson or her colleagues would be able to overturn Heller. I can certainly see them destroying it by a thousand cuts. Yeah. And I mean, there's just so little Second Amendment litigation at the federal level, right. at the Supreme Court level at this point, compared to like the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment, right? That it, there yeah. is, in her lifetime, you're likely to see a lot more Second Amendment cases. So it really does matter what she believes. But uh, but I think that we covered it pretty thoroughly here. And we really appreciate you taking the time to come back on the show. Uh, our first guest returning again, We've been almost, <laughs> almost a year now since the reload launched. Uh, and so we really appreciate you giving us that support and giving us your time. Thank you. That's an absolute pleasure. All right, it's time for the news update. I'm here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. Welcome back to the show again this week, Jake. Uh, I think you have an interesting story about trends in gun ownership during the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah, we have a, a really cool new survey that just came out from the University of Chicago um, detailing kind of stuff that we've covered for a long time here about the surge in gun ownership during the pandemic. Um, so they, we got some good data now for the two-year period from March 2020 when the pandemic really started in the U.S. to March of this year. And what they uncovered was fairly remarkable. 5% um, of all U.S. adults became first-time gun owners um, during that time period. So one in 20 adults bought a gun for the first time, according to the survey at least. Um, and among those, 69% were people of color, uh, they found, compared to just 26% of pre-pandemic owners. So like clearly a remarkable jump in the amount of uh, yeah. minorities buying guns for the first time. Um, huge. And they were highly skewed towards younger gun owners, which is also pretty big because younger gun, gun owners traditionally weren't really represented in gun ownership broadly. They, uh, I think they said 86% of first-time buyers were under the age of 45 compared to just 40% uh, prior to the pandemic. So pretty remarkable numbers here. That That is incredible. And this is from the University of Chicago. So it's uh, sort of a more academic look at this right. topic than what we've seen before because we most of what we've been relying on uh, now, there have, I believe the University of California did a, a survey of just people in California, or uh, I think they looked at the registration records in California, which, right. which backed up the most commonly cited stat, which came from, which comes from the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the industry's trade group. And they did a dealer survey where they asked gun dealers what their impression of their customer base was. And that's how we got the numbers we've used in the past of, uh, you know, I think it's 13.5 million or so new gun owners over that two-year period, uh, according to NSSF. And so now we have a, sort of another data point to look at, which is 5% of the adult population bought a gun for the first time, which I think is, you run the raw numbers, it's a little bit less than than what uh, NSSF has brought in. But these other uh, statistics match up pretty consistently with what that NSSF report had found and what the industry has been saying for a while, which is that gun owners are getting younger uh, and more uh, more and more minorities are becoming gun owners as well. Uh, and so that seems to be exactly what's reflected in, in this survey, right? 
Well, that's right. Yeah, it brings a little bit of empirical context or, or more empirical context to some of the observational data that you, that we've covered and that you saw uh, thrown around in the media quite a bit. Um, so while you said like, yeah, the numbers might not be exact, um, but it does point to a real trend that's been backed up over and over and over from different surveys. Um, and what's even more remarkable, another thing that they found in this survey was the attitudes of these new gun owners towards uh, gun laws. So we've known for a while um, in past gun surveys that folks that own guns are typically more likely to be opposed to gun control than those that do not. Um, and that same trend held for these first time gun owners. And in fact, on some policies, uh, they were actually more opposed to gun control than the previous gun owners that bought before the pandemic, which is, you know, just another astonishing finding that a lot of these first time gun owners are, are hardcore about their gun rights, or at least a, a decent chunk of them, chunk of them are rather. Yeah. And th that that's getting into the territory where it's sort of adding credence to things that we've predicted would happen, right? right? Where we said, you know, there's all these new gun owners and gun owners tend to be more favorable towards uh, less restrictive gun laws. And so over time, you could expect to see at least some percentage of these new gun owners becoming more favorable towards loosening uh, gun laws. Right. And this is a survey where we're seeing exactly that happen. And actually, it's pretty surprising because you're right. Some of these responses, they're actually more uh, aggressive about wanting to uh, reduce the regulation on, on firearm purchases. And and so that that's pretty fascinating. What were some of the uh, areas where you saw um, the, these new gun owners' beliefs come out? Yeah, the, there's one that I really want to key in on because I think it's pretty telling. It's the they were asked. Uh, so it was pandemic first time gun owners, gun owners that owned their firearms before the pandemic and the non gun owners were all pulled. Um, and the particularly for the policy about short, uh, shortening waiting periods, you saw the biggest gap between first time gun owners and pre pandemic gun owners. So 65 percent of first time gun owners supported shortening waiting periods. Whereas pre-pandemic gun owners only showed up about 49%. And I think that's pretty telling because it's something we kind of talked about and something that you reported on early on when you, you know, you talked to a lot of these folks that were buying guns for the first time and they yeah. just weren't quite aware of what the process was like. And suddenly there were all these roadblocks in their way when they really felt like they needed a gun. And what do you mean I have to wait 10 days to come pick up my gun? Or what do you mean I can't get a gun right now? Um, so I think that one is a, is a, a key uh, indicator, I think, of maybe some of the experience that these first-time gun owners uh, went through. And maybe that informs some of their beliefs. Right, absolutely. I think that is a big tell because it indicates that some of these people, when they went to buy their gun for the first time, were interacting with their state's gun laws for the first right. time as well. Right. And perhaps didn't realize that they were more restrictive than they thought. And so that might be why they're actually even more opposed to uh, something like waiting lists or sorry, wait, waiting periods for gun purchases than people who already own guns and maybe have gotten used to the idea or or whatever the case might be um, in either. And of course, uh, they're far more. Uh, opposed to the idea of, of waiting periods than people who don't own guns. Sure. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's interesting. It, it does feel like perhaps that was because a lot of people in California and uh, Florida or wherever, where else, a number of these other states that have waiting periods, they uh, ran into them in the midst of a, an emergency where they felt that right. uh, lives were potentially threatened, where they wanted to be able to uh, buy a gun to protect themselves, right? And and they didn't like the idea of having to wait. Uh, so uh, it's pretty interesting to see that actually play out now in, in actual uh, academic survey. No, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and another thing that we've covered a lot is the rise in concealed carry permits. Um, and you see that borne out in the data here as well. The gap's not as big with this one because you know we've also covered that concealed carry has just gotten pretty popular more broadly among gun owners. So you, you don't really see the same gap between first-time gun owners and pre-pandemic gun owners, uh, but they're both very supportive, for example, of, you know, this is one of those kind of vague questions, but allowing people to conceal carry in more places, whatever that means. Right. Um, you see 68% of both types of gun owners supporting that. You see equal numbers supporting permitless carry. 
uh, not quite my majorities, it's still 41%, but you see equal numbers between first time gun owners and previous gun owners on these policies. So you do see, you know, equal popularity with gun carry as well with these first timers. Yeah, it, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting to see what, you know, the first evidence of changing attitudes due to uh, people buying guns for the first time. And, uh, you know, obviously it's still just one piece of data. We're going right. to continue to follow this and uh, see what else comes out and how uh, the story might change down the line or how these people will actually affect uh, the political atmosphere down the line as well. I mean, it's one thing to respond to a polling question uh, in a more pro-gun way, but it's another thing to become a sort of single issue voter, uh, as, as they call it, on guns and start to see an impact in how uh, elections actually go. And uh, and I think, in my opinion, the what will be most interesting to see how blue state gun owners, first time gun owners in blue states actually react in when it comes to the politics, whether this becomes a, a higher priority for them than some other issues that they, they might already do. Because I think it's common for people to assume that gun owners are all <laughs> uh, stereotypically have the same views and beliefs and and look the same and have the same concerns. And, and I don't clearly that's not the case from this polling, right. certainly don't all look the same. It's a whole different demographic of people buying guns for the first time during this pandemic. And uh, what we'll need to see is how that has an effect on elections moving forward. I think ultimately that that's what the key uh, indicator will be. If you see Democrats and Republicans becoming more pro-gun uh, in their their political stances because they're losing elections or, or winning elections uh, over this, uh, which Actually, at that point, you had another story briefly this week that was uh, that showed Republicans have a five was uh, eight point advantage, I think. On yes, guns. seven points, I believe. Yeah, Morning yeah. Consult found that. So, yep. uh, pretty, you know, uh, whether that's due to new gun owners or not is less clear, obviously. But right. perhaps, perhaps that's part of it. Um, and we'll have to, you know, wait and watch this play out. I think it'll it'll take years. I don't think it's yeah. something that happens overnight. I mean. Certainly some people expected all the new gun owners from 2020 to immediately turn into Donald Trump voters. And, and it does it certainly didn't seem like that happened. Um, so obviously uh, people vote on more than one issue generally, but if, if these new gun owners bring gun issues to the top of their uh, voting list priority, uh, voting priority list, maybe that'll, maybe that will have a significant impact moving forward. And that's, that's what we're, really going to keep on top of, I think. No, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, we've so far, we've got a ton of polling to show that there's some movement going on. But I, like you said, tangible political results will be the real tell to see how lasting this trend is and how much it affects our politics. So we'll, uh, we'll definitely stay on top of it. Yeah, certainly. Uh, but that's it for the news update this week. We are headed over to a member segment. We got another one for you. Uh, my favorite segment, as I always say, and uh, we'll head over there now. All right, it's time for another one of my favorite segments, the members segment. We're here with uh, one of our Reload members who goes by the name of Weird Beard. He's an anonymous, uh, like a pseudonym there, uh, also hosts a popular podcast called Assorted Calibers. Uh, can you just, uh, hey, just give us a little bit about yourself, a little background. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I go by Weird Beard because I, I currently live in the great state of Massachusetts and uh it is a state where my right to keep and bear arms doesn't exist, and <laughs> that upsets me. And uh, and I, I do a lot of activism work there, and so I like to keep as low a profile as possible. I mean, people can find me. Unfortunately, people have found me of good people, but also not so good people. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that's that is why I go by but by, by weird beard uh, for that plus. I, I'm I'm an entertainer. I run the Assorted Calibers podcast, and we we like we like to uh, keep things entertaining. Well, fair enough. I can understand that. Uh, um, and so, why don't you just give us a little bit about uh, how you got into guns? When did you first start shooting? Did you grow up with firearms, or uh, did was it something you got into later on in life? 
I, I grew up in Southern Maine. I, I was born in Portland. And, uh, and uh, so I was always around guns because it's even though Portland is the biggest city in Maine, it's still a very rural state. And so like, I mean, I would, you know, relatives would have a deer rifle hanging on, hanging on the wall. It was not an uncommon sight. Uh, but my folks were uh, were not uh, are not pro gun people. Still are not uh, pro gun people, and so I grew up in a very anti gun environment. Uh, though at the same time, we've got you know markers all around the place here that say where there's uh, dead English soldiers from the Revolutionary War uh, buried, and so it is the the Second Amendment as it was written was always very clear to me, but then suddenly when it came to the common sense gun control laws, that also made a lot of sense to me when I was young. But it wasn't until I went to the University of Maine, which is in central Maine and very much in the woods, and mm. I had a friend whose dad built a 100 yard shooting range in his backyard and a Ooh, nice ma- amazing collection of guns. He he collected Weatherby rifles. And so uh, I one of the first guns that I shot, not the first, but one of the first guns I shot was a 460 Weatherby Magnum. And I have been madly in love with recoil ever since. That's quite an experience for a first first gun. Yeah, that 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 got me to start reading up at, at that point in time. I was 19, a poor college student. I didn't have enough money for a gun. And so therefore I just read about them and started learning about them. And uh, my, my, my toe into activism came when I moved to Massachusetts and uh, I had some guns from Maine and I realized, oh, I need a permit to own these here. Well, let's go get that done. And while applying for the permit, the, I believe this person was just a secretary, not even a, uh, not even a, a peace officer. They were working for the detective that was in charge of the permits uh, for, it was Medford, Massachusetts. Uh, Said to I said to her, well, is the concealed carry license, does that cover everything? Can I get just one license and have that be all I need? Yep, that's all you need. All right, well, I'd like the concealed carry license. Well, we don't issue those. <laughs> yeah. And I realized I hadn't even given her my name. I, I was new to the town. She didn't know who I was, but she said, no, you will not be carrying a firearm in the state of Massachusetts while we're under your watch. And, yeah, and that's... Uh, that enraged that's me. Not, and yeah, that's not even a, a, an uncommon experience, I think, for people who actually try and obtain nope. uh, gun carry permits in May issue states. You'll often hear people say, uh, law enforcement just straight up told me you aren't going to get one. You can apply, but you won't mm-hmm. get one. Uh, so it's interesting to hear. Yeah, you know, that's, that's how Massachusetts like and most places work is. Yeah, either either the place that the town I live in right now, when we bought a house, that was one of the key points where we're, we're going to own property. We're going to own property in a place that doesn't treat me like a criminal. And so they hmm. it's so long as you pass the, it, it's may it's it's a uh, it's it's shall issue uh, here. Essentially, there's all the may issue framework works. They ignore it, which is great. And that's most towns in Massachusetts. But then there are towns yeah. where it's essentially no issue unless you know somebody or can grease some palms. You're not getting it. Yeah, that's another common feature in, in May issue states. Uh, you know, California's like mm-hmm. that. A, a lot of places where absolutely you, once you get outside of the the cities, um, even though the law is May issue, they treat it more like like shall issue. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that's interesting. And so what what was it that made you want to start the podcast? Um, I had actually started doing uh, podcasts with other people. I'm I'm a big fan of podcasts. I, I love listening to this podcast and I'll have to have the awkward thing of fast forwarding through the part where I don't want to hear myself say stuff that I already <laughs> heard myself say. But, uh, and uh, so I love the medium. I've, I've actually, I was, I, 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 as a teenager, I started listening to a lot of talk radio. And so I really loved that news and talk format. Even when I was a, a, a left-wing kid, I, I still listened to Rush Limbaugh every day. I didn't agree with anything hmm. he said, but I loved, I loved the medium. I love the art form. And so it just only seemed natural when this pod thing start, started, things started coming out and I started having friends that started, started them up and realized, oh, going through it. So uh, this podcast, uh, Sword Calibers podcast is a, uh, is a kind of a, an iteration of a show started by Sean Sorrentino, a friend of mine who uh, started the gun blog variety cast. And then he decided that he didn't want to do it anymore. And so I, so you can still, if you go, if you search a sort of calibers podcast, you can actually listen to the back catalog of Gunblog Variety Cast on that. 
but so yeah, it was. A, it's a variety show format podcast where we've got a, a number of contributors, including Stephen Katowski has appeared yeah, on it. You might have heard of him. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, and so it's yeah, it's uh, it's a good time. We talk about uh, we mostly talk about Second Amendment news from a uh, a nonpartisan uh, standpoint uh, for mm-hmm. it. So also, if you are not the what you might call the atypical that most people cater to, such as you know the libertarians and the conservatives and all that, but you believe in our Second Amendment right, I, I hope that it's a friendly place for you. Yeah, and I really enjoyed being on the show. Honestly, yeah, I thought it was uh, I thought it was really well done. You do a great job with it. Um, so what? Well, thank you. What was it that uh, got you interested in the reload? Um, r- really, part of doing Second Amendment news, I'm reading news stories constantly, and specifically in the David Chipman stories, your page was always the first one to show up. And I'm like, you know, who is this? Who is this guy? And eventually, I just reached out to you. I'm like, hey, kid, do you want to come on and talk about this? And it was super easy. You're, you know, you're just like, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, then started reading the reload and I, I won't lie. I, I read not as a member for, for, for probably, yeah, probably about a solid year. And I feeling guilty about it because I mean, you do a lot of hard work and, and, and so I really wanted to chip in and help. So my, my new year's resolution this year was to become a reload member. Yes. And it really does help. I mean, that is how we, we fund our reporting. It's that's the only way we fund it right now. There's, uh, it's the members who who make this all happen. Wouldn't be possible without without you guys. So I really, really genuinely do appreciate it. And I really like talking to uh, to members because it's like such a uh, eclectic group that we have. Uh, I think it's uh, pretty unique out there in the world. And you know, we got a lot of you know leaders of the top gun groups subscribe to the reload. A lot of people on the, the Hill subscribe to the reload uh, and in the Senate and the house. But, but we also, we just have like a, a wide variety of, of everyday gun owners as well, who subscribe and, and are interested in supporting what we do. And that really is what makes this all worthwhile. Cause it, it's a lot of work, but it's uh it's very rewarding when, when you get to actually meet some of the people who uh, make it possible, you know? Yeah, no, it's it, it's we really I got to say, I really appreciate the, the reporting that you do, because there really isn't anybody else who's doing quite you're doing is doing primary source reporting. I mean, certainly I do a lot of reporting on the Assorted Calibers podcast, but it's all, you know, joining in secondary sources, uh, uh, secondary reporting where I'm, I'm gathering up the information and presenting it to people, which is important, too, of course. Um, but. Uh, but so how can people find uh, Assorted Calibers? Where, where, where do you usually send people if they want to listen to it? There's assortedcalibers.com is our website, and we put all the stuff up there. Uh, there's also, uh, you can just go into any of your podcast apps. I mean, you're listening to this right now. So whatever you're listening to this on, just hit that little you know search button and just type in Assorted Calibers podcast, and it should pop up. Awesome. Well, uh, I'll have to come back on the show again soon. Now that now that you've been on, uh, now that we've swapped, yeah, because uh, yes. I, I really enjoyed it last time. It's always time good and, to have you and, on, Steve. Uh, yeah, I, I really would like to come on again soon. So we'll have to arrange that. But uh, that's it for this week's episode. Uh, if if you want to become a Reload member out there, if you want to support what we're doing, the reporting, and uh, potentially have an opportunity to be on the show. Uh, Head on over to reload.com and, and check out our membership options today. We have monthly memberships. We got a yearly membership that uh, gives you uh, basically two months for free. Uh, and we have a lifetime membership if you're feeling particularly uh, generous about supporting our work. And we'd uh, recommend you head on over there today and check it out. You'll get access to exclusive content in addition to this podcast a day early. And again, the, the opportunity to appear on the show. But until next week, we will see you guys soon.